All right, if you are new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles and seatbacks in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. Look like this. On the inside, you're going to get a recap of what we will talk about today. On the back, you'll get the verses we're going to cover. On the bottom, you get a place for notes. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, Announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And this is Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, and it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to walk with you, that our lives would be centered upon who you are, and that you would draw us continually to yourself. And in the midst of that, we would glorify you and our lives would sit in places where we start to have this fruit of the Spirit as it is, as it is shown in our lives naturally by how we live and by how we love you. Amen. MC. We are doing a series, the New Testament book of Galatians. This is week 22, and today we will mostly finish chapter 5. And I say mostly because the last verse in chapter 5, I'm going to stick on chapter 6. And there's a reason for that. You'll see that next week. But just a side excursion real quick. If you don't know this, the chapter divisions in the Bible that you have, those were done in the 1200s. The verse divisions, those were done in the 1500s. And those were done so that we can help people to find things, especially when you stick the entire Bible together and you have tons of books, I can say open to Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 and you can find that. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing, but sometimes in doing that it causes us to pull certain verses away from other ones and not read things in context. So that's kind of a negative of it. And I really think the last verse in chapter 5 goes with chapter 6. I think Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we are going to finish, in my view, chapter 5 today. I'll just say that is I'm right. I, I guess it's, that's what I get. Uh, so we want to look at where Paul is going, where he's taking us all this time to get us to the place where now we are stepping into relationship with one another. And what does that look like as we live our lives out? When we trust Jesus, when we understand the gospel, the spirit brings fruit into our lives. We are alive and we start to grow fruit. Sometimes it'll start small, but then it starts to grow bigger into what it is supposed to to be. So Paul is going to contrast today works that come from the flesh versus fruit that comes from the Spirit of God's work in our lives. If you have a Bible, open to Galatians chapter 5. If you're going to use one of the ones at Element, that's on page 633. Uh, Tim Keller once wrote that he doesn't think there's really any other section in Scripture that really tells us what a life looks like as we start to work, walk with the Spirit better than Galatians chapter 5 here. And he says this, that's what spiritual resurrection is. To be a Christian means you have resources for change that are unique, unequaled, and unsurpassed. And what makes you or me or anybody else a Christian, it's not, oh, look, I've turned over a new leaf. It's not, look how hard I'm working. Oh, I'm so moral. I'm so nice. We actually live in a different way because God has made us alive. We have a rebirth. We are new birth is what Jesus says to a guy named Nicodemus. And we begin to walk with God, with His Spirit, and it changes our lives. What makes that possible 
is the resurrection power of Jesus living in and through us. So Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, Paul says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. When Paul writes those words to the people in Ephesus, he wants them to understand their hope, but it's something they already know. But what he is saying is that hope actually references relationship. And when we are in relationship with God, something begins to happen in our lives. We begin to change. This fruit starts to come about. So let me read this whole section in Galatians, and then we'll talk about it. Galatians 5, starting in verse 16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. <gasps> you got to take a breath in there. It means there's a lot of them. Uh, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. When he says things like these, that means it's not an exhaustive list. We will find other ways to send to in case you didn't know. And he says this, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Simply Christians don't live this way. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, like we don't forbid these things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, what you start to see here as Paul walks through all of this and how we walk with God is these are issues of cause and effect. Why do we do what we do? Two weeks ago, we talked about our motivation. Why do some lives honor God and some lives don't honor God? This isn't necessarily about ethics. It's a conflict, Paul says, between flesh and spirit. If you use a New International Version, an NIV, it will put the word there. It'll say sinful nature, but in the Greek, it literally means our flesh, works of the flesh versus fruit of the Spirit. As a Christian, we have a new heart, a new life. God has, is molding us and shaping us into the image and likeness of His Son, but He's doing that from the inside out. And if He does that, why do we sin? Well, the reasons we continue to sin is the issue of our rebellion. It's our flesh. It's our flesh. It always wants what is contrary to God. And so Paul says the Spirit and the flesh, they're constantly at war. They're constantly in battle. And when we are vigilant, not diligent, and we give up the passions and desires, which sometimes can be good things, can overtake our lives when they become our focus. So if I am ruled by my flesh, there are certain indicators of that in my life, obviously. And if I'm ruled by the Spirit, there are certain indicators of that in my life. Obviously, just like when you look at the fruit of spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that can run through us. So can, Paul says, these desires of the flesh. But we have the power of God to actually change. And I would like to submit to you that all too often we settle for way too little. It's like one author says, he goes, we always settle for way too little. He goes, look what you have in you. You have the resurrection power of Jesus living through you. The, the power that broke the bonds of death is available to you. And so Paul today is going to show us two things. Number one, signs of spiritual deadness. And secondly, he's going to show us signs of spiritual life. So the first one is signs of spiritual deadness. It's like I'm giving you the medicine before you get the cookie because Paul does that. That's me. I want the bad news first. 
and then give me the good news. People say, well, the bad news is the good news. I'll take the good news first. Always give me the bad so I can end on a high. So here's the bad news. Number one, signs of spiritual deadness. Verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Uh, these are 15-ish words, depending on what translation you're using when you look at those things. And what Paul is going to say is those are not just for irreligious people. Everybody has a tendency at times to fall into these things. When you hear the works of the flesh, we think, oh, that's the bad people that do those. Oh, that's the terrible people over there. That's, that's not us. But Paul is going to say we all fall into these things. Now, I'm going to break this out better in just a moment, but Paul uses three words to start that deal with sex. He will use this word called sexual immorality. This is where we get our word pornography from. And this is like a whole, it's not just pictures because, you know, they didn't have pictures back then. This is like a whole host. It's like the junk drawer for sexual sin. And then the word impurity, and when it talks about sexuality, this means a moral uncleanness that you will be giving to other people. And then the word sensuality, sometimes the NIV will use the word debauchery, and this means unbridled lust. And these all have to do with uncontrolled, out-of-control sexuality. And you might say, oh, oh, of course that's what they mean. I get it. But there's actually two other words that Paul uses that we equate with sexuality that aren't actually sexual and how he uses them here. They actually deal with substance abuse. So the first word is drunkenness. Sometimes that's translated as something that would make us think of sexuality. But this is actually this word called methe. And methe comes from the Greek goddess for drunkenness. Yes, there's a Greek God for that. There's a Greek God for just about anything you can think of, okay? And then there's this word, orgies. The word orgies comes from this word called komos, which is where most scholars believe Aristotle got the word for comedy from. And so a komos was a procession of people without a chorus leader who would stumble around to all hours of night and they sang and they danced all through the night. So when it talks about orgies, those are not sex orgies. Drunkenness and orgies have to do with substance abuse, out of control with substances. And that could be alcohol. It could be pot with your gummies and your cyclical vomiting. It could be sugar. Could be meth, could just be food in general. Many moral Christians will look at, oh, look at those fleshly desires, and they think it is something that they don't even have to deal with. And yet it's something we all, in the end, deal with. And Paul is going to go on, though. He's going to pound his point home like a late-night infomercial. But wait, there's more. Okay, Selfish ambition, envy, jealousy, hatred, discord, fits of rage, dissensions. Those are all things that are in the Galatian church. Those are the things he's talking against that are running rampant. And if you have been in a church any length of time, you will see some of these in a church. When you're in a small community of people, you will see these things raise their head. If you're outside the community, many times you don't see it, but inside you do. And this is why people get very disillusioned with churches. It's the people. It's the people. It gets so overwhelming because we just want to be around good people like us. If I can just find all the good people like me, and churches will start to do church like bomb shelter. They'll say, let's get all the good people together because we're the good people. We'll let the bad people stay outside. The world's going to burn, but we'll be okay because we're just with the people just like us. And you give it enough time, that little community is going to explode because we are all messed up every single one of us. We are not sinful in and of ourselves. We are redeemed by the blood and the work of Christ. 
and we want to be around people just like us, that ends up becoming idolatry, and that becomes sin. And so Paul, he's trying to get people to understand this when he talks about the work of the flesh. So the work of the flesh is simply borne out in four different categories. The first one we talked about, obviously, sexuality, right? Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. That includes websites. That includes lust. That includes adultery. It includes everything down to bestiality and child molestation. The second thing he talks about then is how it's borne out in false spirituality. False spirituality would be sorcery, witchcraft, or idolatry. And idolatry, as I said, it's not where we cease to worship, but we worship something other than God. A.W. Tozer said this, Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God, or worshiping God is less than He has revealed Himself to be. And so this could be anything you commit your time and your energy and your income and your heart to. It could be a sports team. It could be a band. It could be a golf game. It could be an education. It could be... Uh, your children, could be kids' sports, it could be a marriage, it could be a job, it could be anything you commit your entire life to that is not Christ. The human heart is an idol factory, and it wants to worship something. If you're not worshiping Jesus, you will worship something else. And then when it talks about sorcery, no matter how flowery you make that, it's trying to do one thing. It is trying to manipulate God to get what you want in your life. This is why there are incantations and spells and rites because people think that through those, you get God, nature, the universe, the gods, the spirits, whatever it is to do what you want. This can also be superstitions. Now, do Christians get involved in superstitions? Uh, okay, guys, all the time. I know this guy when his favorite football team is doing well won't change his underwear. It's disgusting, and he thinks he has something to do with his team doing well. You have nothing to do with it. Nothing. You're not out there playing. You're sitting there in your nasty underwear. That's, that's what's happening. But Christians will do this. Oh, I want God to do this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast. I'm not going to eat for 40 days, and then God will have to do what I want. Uh, God needs to act with my prayers. And so I'm going to pray this little prayer by some obscure guy in the Old Testament that somebody wrote a book on for 40 days, half an hour a day, that God's going to give me what I want. I'm going to read my Bible and the really boring parts, and God's going to see how committed I am, and He's going to do what I want Him to do. It's sorcery. It's sorcery. You're saying that God doesn't do things because he loves us. You're saying God does things because he must be appeased and manipulated. And that is false spirituality. The third one here about what our flesh brings about socially, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Sin separates us from God and each other. Flesh divides people. And when that happens, relationships die and marriages die, and church communities die. Communities that are governed by the flesh are not uplifting one another. They are destroying each other. And then the fourth thing he talks about is addictions. And that's where he gets again to orgies and debauchery. It's a desire that enslaves us, a desire that masters us. Because it's not that we eat, it's that we become gluttons. It's not that we drink, it's that we become drunkards. It's not that you can't have a conversation, but then we become gossips. It's not that you can't have and make money, because that can be a great thing but then we obsess over it as if there's nothing in the world and that money becomes our security and our comfort. We just never have enough. And so Paul is not just picking on immoral people. 
He's saying when we follow our flesh, this is the direction every single one of us run. It's not those who don't like traditional values. It's a spiritual deadness that our hearts naturally incline towards. And so Paul turns this around. He says, what you want in your life is not dead works. What you want is fruit that is birthed by God's Spirit in our lives. And that fruit that is birthed by God's Spirit, it leads us to the place of restoring relationships with one another. So what are those? Glad you asked. Paul has an answer for that. So these are the opposite of the works of the flesh. So now signs of spiritual life. Here's your cookie. You're welcome. So what does he start with? What do you think Paul starts with? What do you think he'd start with when he talks about fruit of the Spirit? Love, right? That's where Jesus starts. That's where Paul starts, where they keep going to. The first thing about all this, that's love. Now, with where Paul has been going with this, part of love then is opening yourself up to somebody else for the intrinsic value of who they are, as opposed to using them to feel good about yourself. You open yourself up. You love them because they're made in the image of God, so you give yourself away in love. The opposite of love in the Bible is not hate. 1 John 4.18 tells us that perfect love casts out fear. And if perfect love casts out fear, well, you got to say, well, that's not the opposite of hate. The, the opposite of love is not hate. It's fear. It's a self-protection. It's an indifference. You cannot love and protect yourself at the same time. And if you are married, you understand that. You've got to give your heart away. And that gives the other person the ability to hurt you and wound you very deeply. When you love, you become open and vulnerable. I found this quote, fear is self-protection. Love is self-opening. And there are a lot of people today who fear commitment. They don't want to commit because, oh, I'll be you know, whittling down my options. No, when you commit, you open yourself up to a greater love than you have ever known. But you also open yourself up to being hurt in ways that you've probably never known. And Paul is saying we need to open ourselves up to love and care for one another, even if we get hurt, because this is what the fruit of the Spirit brings. Love is opening yourself up to someone for the intrinsic value of who they are, not for what they can do for you. And then he goes to joy. Joy would be delight in God. It is delighting in who God is for the intrinsic value of who He is. Just like counterfeit love is selfish affection, the counterfeit to joy is when we only focus on the blessings. Hashtag blessed. Look at all that God is doing for me. We're not focusing on the one who blesses us. We're focusing on the things. The problem with not understanding joy is sometimes you might have a happiness because God is doing, you think in your mind, all the things that you want Him to do. But what happens when things don't go your way? What happens when everything else falls apart? Do you still have a joy in who God is? Because joy and love, they're extremely alike. But one tends to be horizontal and one tends to be vertical. As Paul talks about it here, joy is going to be vertical. It's going towards God. And then love is horizontal. It's going out towards other people. And so you have love and joy, and that moves to peace. Peace is a confident and trust in God's wisdom, not our own. God has control in our life. Peace comes not from thinking we know how to do everything better than God. It comes from trusting who God is. Peace tends to be the opposite of an angry spirit. Are you quick to forgive? Do you hold judges? Because do you, do you hold judgment against other people? Because eventually what that'll lead to is a lack of patience. This is all going together. Angerness can lead to brokenness and death. And as a matter of fact, studies now show that improper anger in your life actually will start to disintegrate and destroy you from the inside out. And if that's what happens physically, imagine what happens spiritually when you are angry in this type of way. The only way we live a deep life of joy is trusting God so we can begin to forgive as He forgave us. And so you have love, joy, peace, 
patience goes into kindness. Kindness moves us to a place of generosity as opposed to envy. It's a generosity of spirit where you rejoice when others do well. You don't have this fear and this anger when someone else does well and you don't. You're not jealous of somebody else's success. You're excited for that. You don't get FOMO. You're not like, oh, I wish I was there doing all It's like, yay, I'm glad for you. This is a great thing. No envy. And then this then goes into goodness. And goodness for us, I don't think, it's not a bad translation of the word, but it's kind of a bad translation for us because our idea of goodness isn't the same as their idea of goodness. And the word goodness, it meant a sincerity or an integrity. That's opposed to hypocrisy. And this fits together because integrity comes by having enough love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that you can be the same with one group as you are with another group. One of the critiques that I hear about me, well, one of the many, I get, I get a lot, by the way, uh, is that I am not holy enough in front of you, that I need to be more holy, that I can't talk about my failures or the places where I struggle or my wife and I struggle in certain things. I've got to look better than I do. And I got to tell you, I don't know how to be any different than me. You go to my house, the Aaron you meet at my house is the same Aaron you're going to meet when I'm standing up here talking to you. And sometimes people have a really hard problem with that. Again, I don't know how to be anything other than me. Sometimes up here, I will think of how to say things better than other places, but sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just say words and it makes everybody mad. And I'm like, what did I say? And then someone has to tell me what I say. And I say, well, is that wrong? And they say, yes, you shouldn't say that. And I'm like, okay, well, that, that, that's my life. Okay. I, I don't ever want to be fake in front of you. It's not an excuse for not trying to be better, but I don't want to be fake in front of you. But how about you? Are you the same in this room as you are outside of this room? Are you the same with your group of friends as you are with your group of friends that come from church or your group of friends that come some, somewhere else? If you're home alone and you're on your computer, are you the same when you're alone versus if your spouse or your kids or your friends were watching you on said computer? If not, there's a lack of integrity and that's a lack of goodness. So Paul then takes that into faithfulness and going in line, faithfulness actually means dependability. You are, you are committed as opposed to being half-hearted about everything. It's like reliable, not making promises and never fulfilling them. If that's you, that is a sign of brokenness. That's a sign of the works of the flesh. And that's not saying, oh, you're not saved. It's God's calling you to walk in his spirit to understand that God has been faithful to us. And so we become a faithful people. And then this goes into gentleness. And again, for us, gentleness usually becomes a poor translation because this is the word for humility. As someone once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. One person calls this blessed self-forgetfulness. This means you don't have to wonder how you look all the time. You don't have to put walls up when you meet new people or have conversations. When I was in second grade, I, I got the chicken pox and I was home for a couple weeks. And after two weeks at home, I'm coming back to school and all the kids are lined up outside of the classrooms. I don't know if they still do that. Oh, we can't leave kids outside. I don't know. But either they're all lined up and they see me and they're like, oh, Aaron, like they probably thought, what happened to that guy? Did he disappear? Did he move? Did he die? What happened to that kid? And, and I'm like, people like me. Oh, they know who I am. And so I'm like, yeah. And I start to run and they had this black top with all these divots in it. It had just rained. They're full of water. And I go, on my face, just skidded right through a puddle, and I get up, and you're like, second grade, so you can't really control all the emotions, like, right, and then nurse's office, I go home the rest of the day. All I think about is how embarrassed I am. What is everybody going to think of me? Because I just took a, you know, yard sale right in the middle of that puddle, and, you know, what, what, I, nobody cared. Nobody cared. No one brought it up. No one made fun of me. Nobody cared but me. 
Nobody cared but me. I'm only thinking about me. And this is what we tend to do in our lives. We get obsessed about something that we think about ourselves, and we, just, we think everybody else is thinking about that. And honestly, most of the time, nobody cares. Nobody cares. We get so self-obsessed about ourselves, thinking about ourselves, and that's not a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is this blessed self-forgetfulness. You watch these music videos of like country, even country stars or uh, rock stars or rap stars, and they're always doing these things like, this is how cool I am. Look at all the stuff I got. Look at, and it's like they're just doing this because they're trying to make people think, look how great I am. Do you ever walk into a room and think, what do these people think about me? How am I doing? How do I look? How do I feel? Gentleness, humility is that blessed self-forgetfulness. It's the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of self-absorption, of self-consciousness. It's so wonderful. And here's the last one, self-control. You're like, "Uh uh-oh. Okay, self-control. This is actually, in context, the ability to choose the important thing over the urgent thing. Important thing over the urgent thing. I I tell my friend Nick this all the time. If something's on fire, I want Nick around me. Because if something's on fire, I'm like, ah, fire. And Nick's like, okay, um, it's on fire. What do we got to do here? Okay, we got this. We got this. Let's get these people out the door. We got to fix it. He's great. He just looks at what's most important, not what is most urgent. One of the very first jobs I had was at the highway driving when it was still open. Um, I was 15 years old. I'm working in the concession stand, and I got put on making the popcorn duty. Not a tough job except I made it so. So I'm making popcorn, and all of a sudden, I set the popcorn machine on fire. It's a gift, all right? I have no idea how it happens. It's just a gift I have. And so me, trying to put it out, I'm like, oh, liquid puts it out. So I keep pushing the oil button. And I'm all, hey, you know not to do this. This is great. And I'm like, I'm like, liquid, 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 liquid. It's all, and it's getting bigger and bigger. I'm like, what? My boss comes, he's all, and he shuts the lid. And I spent three hours cleaning the roof. I got paid for it. Not much back then. It was like, you know, four bucks an hour. But hey, I got, I got paid for doing it. And this is the thing. What is the thing that looks so overwhelming in the moment? What's so urgent versus what is the thing that is actually needed? What's the thing that's needed? And that's really what self-control does. It leads us into a place where we can love and live and work with others. So we can step into each other's lives and say, this is the most important thing right now. Maybe you have a group of friends and they're making some dumb decisions and you got the group mentality. The Lakers won, the Lakers lost, whatever. And they're just like, we're going to go riot. You'd be like, no, that's not a great idea. Let's not do that. You do the thing that is actually correct in the moment. You're not being pulled into all these different areas. Now, what Paul says about the fruit of the Spirit is really interesting because he calls them fruit. He doesn't call them the fruits of the Spirit. It's singular. And Paul's not using bad grammar. Like if you're an English teacher, you don't have to red pencil this and say, oh, look here, the, there's not an agreement between the subject and the predicate. It, it, when he says fruit of the Spirit, it's one thing. And it brings about nine different benefits in our lives. Someone likened it to like a diamond, right? You have one diamond, it has nine different facets on it. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is like. And every one of these is an aspect of practical holiness that God's bringing about into our lives. And you can't have one without the other. It's not that they're all 100%. You know, again, they're fruit. The fruit starts really small and it starts to grow, but they're all beginning to grow in our lives. And if one falls completely apart, they all start to fall apart. And so let me say something about all of us here, not just you, but me too. If we are believers in Jesus, these are the things that will start to grow in our lives. And if they're not growing in our lives, you have to ask, 
What excuse do we have when we have that resurrection power of Christ actually in us? How do we do this? How do we begin to, to walk in the fruit of the Spirit? Well, Galatians 5.16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's how you walk away from the flesh. You, you're walking with the Spirit. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. How do we live in the fruit of the Spirit? We walk with the Spirit. Here's a good question. Do we know how to be like Jesus? Uh, no. Okay, just to go, yeah, no, we don't. But does the Spirit of God? Yes. Do we know the deep flaws because we lie to ourselves all the time? I'd say no. We don't know our deep flaws. But does the Spirit of God? Yes. Yes. He knows us. He knows us. He knows how to lead us and guide us and propel us towards Jesus. And in a way, when we understand that and start to walk with Him, we start to honor Jesus, and sin starts to move further and further away from us. Verse 25 again, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That is an ongoing life process. God is infinite. Heaven's not the finish line. Heaven's like this next step. We just keep moving forward, walking with Him. The Spirit draws us to the Son. The Son takes us before the Father. The Father loves the Spirit and the Son. The whole Trinity is involved. How do we keep in step walking with the Spirit? And this is where I'm like, uh, I worry about giving you an answer to this. Because if I give you one thing, you might become like the false teachers in Galatia. And you'll start to obsess over this one thing. Legalistically follow that and not Jesus. Like if I said, okay, it'd be great if you read your Bible half an hour a day. Your goal is going to be, oh, I'm going to read my Bible half an hour a day. And then your goal is not Jesus. If I said, pray for half an hour a day, I'm going to pray for half an hour a day. Then your goal is praying, but your goal isn't Jesus. And that could be, you know, tithing and fasting or serving or any other of a million different things. But if you focus on that and not on actually walking with Christ, any of those things in the end can become idolatry, even though they're good things. When good things become ultimate things, it becomes idolatry. And so what I want to do is simply try to remove the clutter from your life and tell you it's about Jesus and growing close to Him. Some of you do need to confess your sins, and that would be great. Some of you need to read the scriptures, pray, sing, love others. We must follow the Spirit of God. And I think what a teacher who is any good at all wants to do is just remove the clutter from you so you would begin to walk with the Spirit of God. You would talk to Him because I believe God is at work in every single one of His children. And I think that is different ways at different times. And if you don't know how God is leading, where He's taking you, then ask Him. Ask Him. And then just don't ask Him and keep yammering on. Get quiet and listen to what He is actually trying to say. Because when Paul uses this word desires here, in other places it's translated as lust because it's an over-desire. You can have a desire for a good thing that ends up becoming an idol. In verse 24 he says, And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And what that is telling you is you don't have to try to work really hard to be a Christian. You trust Jesus and you are one. And then our lives become characterized not by trying and striving and morality. Our lives become characterized by walking with the Spirit, listening, following, worshiping, loving Him. And our lives naturally begin to change. Paul says, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And if you think about this in context, the whole time that Paul is talking about the flesh and all this, he keeps pushing towards works. And he's relating the works of the flesh to the works, the legalism that's there. Because when people are under the law, it doesn't mean they want to obey the law. They don't want to be obedient to the law. What it means is they're trying to find some other way to make themselves feel acceptable. 
whether it's to God or other people or even themselves. Being under the law is relying on something other than the work of Christ in your life to make you feel like you are accepted. And Paul is pointing out here that the more we follow the law, the more our fleshly desires are going to start to give rise. I don't know if you've ever known somebody who's part of a deeply religious like legalistic, super biblical community in the eyes of, I try to follow the Bible and that's going to get God to love me. What happens in a lot of those places if they, they have very deeply hidden, very deeply rooted sins and it starts to destroy their community from the inside out because they're not actually walking with Christ. They're letting their flesh pull them in ways that isn't honoring who he is. In Romans 7, Paul will even say, the more in our minds we try to think about things like, oh, I'm not going to think these thoughts about these people. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to look at that particular gender. I'm not going to, oh, and all of a sudden, boom, your mind just starts producing all these impure thoughts. and just go, yeah, don't raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about. So what does Paul say? Paul says, you crucify it. You crucify the flesh. What does that mean? It means you take it to the cross. It's not just say no, though there are places in your life you probably need to just say no to, okay? But you crucify that sinful nature. You walk with the Spirit. You walk with God into every area of your life first. It's not just stop doing this. It's you walk with Him. Because what you understand is not only does your flesh have desires, but so does the Spirit of God. And so we let the desires of the Spirit become our desires. We walk with, we run with towards where the Spirit is leading. So what does the Spirit of God have a desire for? Well, if you look at what Jesus says, John 14, 15, and John 16, Jesus discusses this. And He says, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to send the Comforter, and He will tell you about me, and He will glorify me. What's the Spirit's desire? To glorify Jesus. And when you start to walk with Jesus, you're going to want to glorify Jesus. When you walk with the Spirit, that's where the Spirit leads. We see what Jesus did in the gospel, and it brings this whole difference in our lives, that we are freed from our flesh. Even though the flesh still rears its ugly head, we get to walk and be in relationship with the living God. It's like I keep telling you, in the end, all of our issues are Jesus' issues are Jesus' issues. So take to Jesus your issues. That means we, we die before and we take all these things that are destroying us and lay them at His feet and God's Spirit raises us to life. Every religious system in the world has a works-based answer to how you deal with your sin and your issues. And only the true God says, that's not how it works. You get close to me and I've made that possible. And we walk with me and you will die to your flesh and that's how you begin to truly live. And the problem is, it's so much easier for us to think, if I just do these things, then I get closer to God. If I just said no to this, or walked in this thing, or did that, then I will grow closer to God in these ways. And yet, that's all legalism. It's all legalism. And what are we told? You just walk by the Spirit. How, how is that possible? Jesus' death and resurrection. He takes our sin upon Himself. He rises to new life, which gives us new life. And in that new life that we have, we get to live and walk with the Spirit of God. We become alive. Our relationship is restored. And as we walk with Him, it changes how we live and everything that we do. There is a beauty to understanding what the gospel results in in our lives. And it is a change from focusing on our flesh and all these things that rear its head all the time to focusing on the Spirit of God and where He leads us in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control becomes a natural way we begin our lives. And, and again, I'm not saying that all that, has, that fruit is ripe the moment that you believe. 
It's that sometimes it starts really small, but God's Spirit grows that in us. I mean, maybe you're, you're at a workplace or you're in a marriage or a friendship and you have these things like, I don't feel like I have a whole lot of patience, which leads to a, not a whole lot of self-control when we start talking about certain things. Because the most important thing is not to yell. And I start to yell. And what do I do in the midst of that? It's like sometimes that fruit starts small. But in the midst of understanding the love for another person and open yourself up, then the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness, that's going to lead you to places where you own your failures. And you say, look, I know in the midst of this, I said the wrong thing. I didn't respond as I was supposed to. Because you have the confidence because Christ loves you exactly where you are. And he is the one who is growing you. So we can step into those places and own our failures and be a truly, fully honest people who live in love and grace and hope and (laughs) self-control. And so this morning, I invite you to communion where you break a cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. It's a reminder of his blood that was shed for you and me so that we get to be a people who walk out into this world glorifying who he is because he has done the work to bring us to himself. If you need prayer, there's going to be people across the way in the lounge. You can go during music. You can go after service. If you have any questions, you can talk to them. They would love to pray with you about this, about what the fruit of the Spirit actually begins to look like in our lives and the beauty of what that means. We'd ask you to take those sermon notes and look through those questions and stuff that's on there. And that you, as you walk through those, it reminds you what we talk about today. And that we would be those who honor Christ by how we begin to live and walk with Him in every moment. There's offering boxes uh, on the side walls, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We do not pass the plate. It's a response to what He's done. Everything that we do in our lives... It's not to make God love us. It's all a response to what he has done to bring us to himself. And we, in the end, get to be the most free people in the world because our God has freed us in Christ. And we get to live and walk in that freedom. So let's be those who do that because you may not see it now, but you have the resurrection power of Christ living and working through you when you trust God for his great salvation that he has given to us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would move us to be a people who understand the great salvation that we have been given. The power that you have placed into our lives. The hope that is a certainty of a relationship that we have with you. And so I ask that you would Move our hearts, move our minds, and then in the end, have our body, our flesh respond to your movement so that outwardly we would be a people who love others, who have this blessed self-forgetfulness. We don't feel the need to one-up other people. We don't feel the need to build walls around ourselves, but we can just honestly be who we are before them because we can honestly be who we are before you. We ask that you would remind us daily of the strength that we have been given, that as we walk with you, we would see the Spirit's work in our lives. And that would bring great hope and encouragement to us 
to be those who reflect you in all that we do. Have our lives be one that are full of worship and honor, not just in singing, but in living day by day. How we worship you, how we treat one another. Have our lives bear that fruit that shows of our great trust in you. We ask that in your son's good name. Amen. So we're going to drop the curtains. And as we do, take a couple moments and, and ask God right now what fruit he is developing in you at this moment. Because maybe you go through that list and you go, oh, that's not me. Oh, that's not me. That's not me. And ask God to show you, God, where are you actually growing these things in me right now? And teach me to see it in a way that I wouldn't just look for the end result of what it brings, but the growth and the grace that you are doing in the midst of that growth in my life. And that you can take great hope that God is leading you to places that see better who he is and his call in your life and the power he has placed within you. So take a couple moments to do that. God, where are you growing me right now? What, what is the fruit you're developing in my life at this stage in this moment? And have him teach you, you know, what are the next steps in this? How do I trust you in that this week? Then come and take communion, sing some songs with us. We will head out into this world as God's people, like metaphorical trees, bearing fruit. So don't eat that one, it's sour. But this one's pretty good at this point. You might want to taste that one. (laughs) And we can just have this joy because of who God is and what he is doing. And that would be reflective by how we live.